0: Good morning. Turn in your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 30 this morning. In our sermon last week, Philip had just finished ministering in Samaria when the Spirit of God sent him south to Gaza. On the way, he met a high Ethiopian official who was returning home from Jerusalem. And happened to be reading from the book of Isaiah. Philip showed him how the passage he was reading was a prophecy about Jesus. And the Ethiopian got saved and was baptized. Philip then continued preaching from the gospel in all the towns and villages from Gaza to Caesarea, where he finally settled down. And that brings us up to today. You may recall that back in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. A great persecution broke out against the church, and Saul was trying to destroy it. Well, that persecution was still going on. Let's start reading in chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there, who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you clear our minds of any distractions this morning and help us focus solely on your word and what you have for us. Speak to us through your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Saul had been persecuting Christians in Jerusalem, rounding up both men and women and throwing them into prison. In fact, in Acts 22, when Saul, also known as Paul, talks about this, he says, I persecuted followers of this way to their death. So Christians' lives were on the line. Just imagine if our governor had the power to declare us Christians as enemies of the state and was having us rounded up to be imprisoned or executed. My guess is that many of us would pack up our stuff and move to South Dakota. And that's what the believers in Jerusalem did. Well, okay, they didn't go to South Dakota, but they did pack up their belongings and go into exile throughout Judea and Samaria. And some had gone as far away as Antioch and Damascus in Syria. Saul wanted to pursue the Christians all the way to Syria. But Syria was a different province, so for that he would need authorization from the high priest in Jerusalem. Some critics once said this story was fiction, because Jews in Jerusalem would have no jurisdiction over Damascus in Syria. And the problem is that they didn't know Roman history very well. Julius Caesar had given Jewish leaders the authority to arrest Jews even outside of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And at this early stage, the Christians Saul was tracking in Damascus were all Jews. They were all still connected with the synagogues there. Saul apparently didn't have much trouble getting authorization. So he and a group of men set out on the six-day, 135-mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest members of the Way as verse 2 calls it. Followers of Jesus were not called Christians until later in Antioch. At this early stage, they were called the way. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why. Maybe it was because Isaiah 40, verse 3 predicted, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. More likely, I think, is because Jesus taught that he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Verses 3 to 9 say, As he neared Jerusalem, near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus. and did not eat or drink anything. The story of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus is told three times in the book of Acts. Here in chapter 9, Luke tells the story. In chapter 22, after being arrested, Paul tells the story himself to a crowd of people. And Paul tells the story again at his trial before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. In these three accounts, we learn that the men who accompanied Saul saw the same light he saw, and they all heard the sound, but only Saul could make out what it said. Critics agree that Saul or Paul had some kind of conversion experience on the road to Damascus, but the critics dismiss it as too much sun or some kind of hallucination. But what I want you to see is that according to the book of Acts, this was not just a hallucination or something going on inside of Saul's head. This was something experienced by those who were with him. They saw the blinding light, too. They heard the sound, too. Though only Saul could make out what the voice said. And what the voice said was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, notice that Saul has been persecuting Christians, but Jesus says, You are persecuting me. To persecute the people of Jesus is to persecute Jesus himself. I can't help thinking this was a lesson Saul thought about when he would later teach in 1 Corinthians that we Christians are all part of the body of Christ. And that if one suffers, we all suffer. The experience left Saul blind, so he had to be led by the hand to Damascus. His companions led him to the home of someone named Judas, who lived on Straight Street. I understand that street is still in Damascus to this day. Verses 10 to 19 say that in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, Saul is not the only one who gets a vision at that time. A Christian named Ananias also gets a vision. Now, notice that this is not just some kind of a vague mental feeling or impression. Many people seem to think that every vague impression, inclination, or feeling they get is from God speaking to them. No, this vision contains some very specific instructions. Ananias is to go to a specific street called straight and a specific house on that street belonging to a man named Judas. He is to lay hands on a blind man from Tarsus named Saul, a man who has had a vision and who's expecting him and is praying. Ananias was like, "Uh, excuse me, you want me to do what? (laughs) I've heard about this guy, Saul. He came here to arrest us Christians but in spite of what seems like a dangerous mission, Ananias obeys. He lays hands on Saul and prays for him, and Saul's eyesight is restored. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and gets baptized. I find it interesting that the text says nothing about Saul speaking in tongues, but it does say he got baptized. They wouldn't have understood the idea of an unbaptized believer. Verses 19 to 22 continue. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, no historian can tell everything that happened. All historians have to be selective, and Luke is no different. He is giving a broad summary of what happened. We learn from Paul's own personal testimony in Galatians that soon after his conversion, he left Damascus and spent three years in Arabia. Luke doesn't tell us about that part. Saul was a zealous and highly educated Pharisee whose teacher was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. And all of a sudden, his meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus upended his whole worldview. He had to rethink everything he had been taught in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And my guess is that this is what he was doing for three years in Arabia. After the three years, he returned to Damascus and began preaching Jesus in the synagogues. Even after three years, however, his reputation as a persecutor had followed him. And people were amazed that this man was now proclaiming the very religion he had come to Damascus to destroy. Eventually, however, enough was enough. Verses 23 to 25 say, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the Bible is not a book. It is a collection of books, essays, letters, and histories. And Luke is writing a history. And this is one of the cases in which Luke's history is verified by first-hand testimony of Paul himself. Even the critics believe Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, Paul writes... In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Both Paul and Luke independently verify that he got away from death threats in Damascus by escaping in a basket from a window in the city wall. And from there, Saul headed back toward Jerusalem from which he had originally come. Verses 26 to 28. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. They told them, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. I often have a mental image of the apostles as being filled with the Holy Spirit and being fearless. And at times they were. Peter would stand before a potentially hostile crowd at Pentecost and fearlessly preach Jesus. Peter, John and the other apostles would fearlessly preach Jesus in the temple even after having been arrested. And yet the apostles are just human. They still have their fears like anyone else. And in this case, they were afraid to meet Saul. They were well aware that he had arrested had been arresting Christians. They were undoubtedly new about how he had been part of the mob that stoned Stephen to death. And they thought he was pretending to be a Christian in order to find where they were hiding out so he could arrest them too no wonder they didn't want to meet with him but barnabas was different we first met barnabas back in chapter four his real name was joseph he was a jewish levite from cyprus the apostles nicknamed him barnabas which means son of encouragement he was known for his generosity having sold a field to help provide for the physical needs of church widows. And verse 27 is clear that Barnabas knows about how Saul had preached Jesus fearlessly in Damascus. My guess is that maybe Barnabas had been ministering in Damascus and had witnessed Saul's preaching and maybe had heard his testimony. Barnabas also probably knew of the death threats against Saul and he knew that Saul's conversion was the real deal. So Barnabas is now the only one with enough courage to make contact with Saul, or Paul, and he arranges for him to meet with the apostles. Now, when Luke says Paul met with the apostles, the specific apostles he means were Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus. According to Paul's own personal testimony in Galatians, These were the only two apostles Saul or Paul met at this time in Jerusalem. And I'm sure he had long talks with uh, Peter and James about Jesus. And they confirmed to him the details of what God had showed Paul in a vision that Jesus had indeed physically risen from the dead. Not only had the risen Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul learned it from the eyewitnesses themselves. So Saul or Paul began proclaiming Jesus in Jerusalem. But in verses 29 and 30, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. It appears that Saul or Paul begins getting into debates with the very same people Stephen had debated the Hellenistic Jews. This had resulted in Stephen's death, and the believers didn't want to take any chances with Paul. They took him down to the seaport of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, a little over 50 miles away. They put him on a ship and sent him back to his hometown of Tarsus. And from there we lose track of Saul for about 15 years, until Barnabas comes calling on him. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, first, Paul's life gives us reason to believe. Even the most radical critics believe that Paul was a real person of history and that he actually existed. Paul was a very religious, zealous, and highly educated Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, trained under the famous and influential Rabbi Gamaliel. So zealous was he that he was eager to destroy Christianity by imprisoning Christians and even having them executed. He was totally, absolutely sold out and devoted to his religion and worldview. And suddenly, literally overnight, everything changed. His entire life turned 180 degrees, and he began proclaiming the very message he had been persecuting. The persecutor became the persecuted. He was beaten and imprisoned numerous times, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked and sometimes without adequate food or clothing. His life was in constant danger. Yet he was so devoted to Jesus that he would let nothing stand in his way of proclaiming Jesus. People don't usually just radically change like this overnight for no reason. Why the change? We don't have to guess. Even the most radical critics believe that Paul himself wrote 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul himself says that he had become absolutely, totally convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead, demonstrating that he was who he claimed to be. The risen Jesus had not only appeared to Paul in an event even witnessed by those who were with him. His experience was confirmed when talking to the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection themselves. For Paul, it was that historical fact that kept him going. Quite frankly, even if I didn't believe the Bible was God's inspired word, even if I just thought it was a collection of ancient documents, Paul's testimony and the dramatic radical change in his life would be enough evidence to give serious consideration to his claims about Jesus. Paul's life and testimony give us reason to believe. Second, throughout these first nine chapters, a main theme of the book of Acts has been about the spread of the gospel. At the very beginning, Peter preaches Jesus at Pentecost. Then the apostles preach and teach about Jesus in the temple in direct violation of government orders. Then Stephen preaches Jesus and gets stoned to death. Then Philip preaches Jesus, in first in Samaria, and then to an Ethiopian official, and then in all the towns and villages all the way from Gaza to Caesarea. When Paul gets saved, the first thing he does after sorting out his new faith in Arabia is to preach the gospel in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, even in the face of death threats. This book is about the spread of the gospel. That was the heartbeat of the early church. Missions and evangelism should still be the heartbeat of the church today. Missions and evangelism should be the heartbeat of Randolph Baptist Church also. Finally, in verse 16, God told Ananias about Paul, saying, I will show him how much he can prosper if he just has enough seed faith. Nonsense. That's not what it says. In verse 16, Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, we don't like that very much. You mean Jesus actually wants us to suffer? No, of course not. But if you follow Jesus, suffering may be inevitable. No one who signs up to be a fireman, for example, is signing up for a life of ease. The training is grueling. There will be times of working in oppressive heat and humidity, as well as in freezing rain and cold. You may be working with little sleep and pushing yourself past exhaustion. You may experience smoke inhalation. You may even get extremely painful second or third degree burns. The job is often exhausting, painful, and life-threatening. And many firemen have died. But you know that going in. No one who signs up to be a Christian should think they are signing up for a life of ease. Contrary to some TV preachers, following Jesus is not about health, wealth, financial security, and prosperity. It is about declaring allegiance to Jesus as the king and ruler of your life and being willing to follow him wherever he leads. For Many Christians following Jesus may involve being out of touch with contemporary culture and being falsely labeled as racist, homophobic haters. For some, the road may be much more difficult, like Pastor Philippe Quittant and his wife Erna, who went from the First Haitian Baptist Church in Fort Myers, Florida, to build a church and orphanage in Haiti recently. They had only been there a month when they were murdered. In Luke 14, Jesus warned that if we would follow him, we must count the cost because following him could cost everything. So why then would anyone want to follow Jesus? First John says, we love him because he first loved us. He gave his life for us. He allowed himself to be tortured for us. And he now calls us to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the resolve, the strength, and courage to follow you and to obey you, regardless of where the path may lead. We ask that in your precious name. Amen.